Hello and welcome to the New Lines podcast. I'm Faisal Yafai. And this is a podcast where we delve into some of the biggest ideas, events and personalities in the Middle East and beyond. As Ukraine braces for a fourth week of war, Syria marks 11 years of brutal fighting. Videos from Ukrainian cities like Kharkiv show dead bodies and rubble piling in the streets to the shock of viewers across the world. But for Syrians and others who've survived Russia's previous wars, such scenes may still be shocking, but they are not surprising. Under the leadership of Vladimir Putin, the Kremlin has embarked on an ambitious project to quell internal rebellion and restore the country's status as a global superpower, a project that has led Russia into wars in Chechnya, Dagestan, Georgia, Syria, Libya, the Central African Republic, among others. Bombarding cities into submission is by now a well-established strategy for the Russian armed forces, After their siege of Grozny during the Second Chechen War, the United Nations declared it the most destroyed city on earth. And during the intervention in Syria, the conflict monitoring group Air Wars estimated that over 24,000 civilians were killed by Russian airstrikes. To discuss these issues, today I'm joined by Anand Gopal, an award-winning journalist with over a decade of experience covering wars, revolutions and political violence, and the author of No Good Men Among the Living, America, the Taliban, and the War Through Afghan Eyes. He has reported from countries across the Middle East and Asia, including Afghanistan. Alongside Azmat Khan, he documented the civilian toll of America's war against ISIS in The Uncounted for the New York Times. He is currently working on a book about Syria, where he saw the deadly results of Russia's intervention firsthand. Anand, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Let's start with the big story, which is, of course, Ukraine. This is not the first time that Russia has been involved in a major military conflict. I'm thinking, of course, of Syria, which has had its um, 11th anniversary, and where Russia played a bloody but decisive role. Do you think we can infer how the Syria, how the Ukrainian conflict will go based on what happened in Syria? Well, to an extent, we can. Uh, if you look at the Russian strategy from the very beginning, um, you know they intervened in 2015 September, and their stated goal at the time was to attack uh, Islamic fundamentalists, who are one of the you know part of the the milieu there, the melange of various groups that were fighting against the Assad regime. Uh, and it's, there's a similarity there, of course, to Ukraine, where they called it a denazification campaign, that mm. they were trying to target uh, far-right elements. And so that's what the stated intervention was. But very quickly, it was apparent to observers and to Syrians on the ground that uh, the the real target was much broader. Uh, the uh, the targets were, for the most part, what I, you know one might call the democratic opposition or the mainstream opposition. These are rebel groups that were seeking to overthrow the Assad regime and replace it with some form of democracy. And uh, mm. they were far more numerous, at least in the early years of the uprising, compared to the Islamic fundamentalists. And so the Russian Russian uh, air powers brought to bear upon them, first and foremost. And I think we're seeing something similar in, in Ukraine, where uh, denazification or not, it's, it's ordinary Ukrainians and uh, the Ukrainian military that's bearing the brunt of the, of the attacks. So in that respect, I think there's similarities. But of course, there are some pretty important differences because in the Ukraine, you're facing uh, uh, an organized military. You, you, yeah. you know, the Ukrainian, Ukrainian state is a cohesive, centralized state. They have tanks, they have air power, they have anti-aircraft weaponry, whereas the Rus- uh, the Syrians didn't have any of those. But they were an organized state still. I mean, they were still a rump state when the Russians intervened in 2015. 
but they intervened on behalf of the rump state. Uh, you know, the, so the the forces that Russia was arrayed against at the time were just mostly you know people from all walks of life. You know, farmers and uh, students and engineers and others, uh, people who didn't have real military training. They certainly didn't have access to the type of military equipment that the Ukrainian armed forces have access to. They certainly mm-hmm. did not have type uh, access to the, the funding that the Ukrainian armed forces had access to. And so that's a, I think that's a, a pretty major difference. And even then, with that difference, it took uh, pretty overwhelming air power and a number of years before the Russians could turn the top in the conflict and essentially hand the Assad regime something like a victory. So I wonder then how you interpret the the first couple of weeks of the invasion of Ukraine, where the casualties were surprisingly low. It seemed as if Russia was reluctant to use its overwhelming air power, which of course it used in Syria. I wonder how you interpret what you think their strategy is. If, as you say, despite having so much firepower in Syria, it still took them so long to triumph. Yeah, I think there's a couple of lessons we can draw from this. Of course, it's just a couple of weeks in and uh, things will probably change. But uh, at the very beginning, it seems like they did not expect the level of resistance that they faced. They did not expect that the Ukrainian state would remain cohesive and have what looks like a large degree of popular support, at least in terms of uh, people who are opposing the Russian occupation. So that's first Mm -hmm. and foremost. Second, the Russians have still not been able to um, obtain air supremacy. And that's a big that's a big uh, difference from Syria, where from the very beginning the Russians had air supremacy. Uh, I think if you take those two together, uh, then it's not surprising that the things have been going a little bit slower. And they also I, we're starting to see now they're taking their gloves off. You, you know, you mentioned Kharkiv and uh, other places where you're seeing real atrocities happen, but uh, in the Syrian conflict, that was from the beginning. Um, mm. There was no sort of honeymoon period where they were coming in and kind of treading lightly and then starting to attack. I mean, from the very beginning, they were targeting markets, they were targeting hospitals, they were targeting crowded population centers. Um, And so it was pretty brutal from day one. Everything that we've seen in Ukraine was already happening in Syria on a larger scale. The shelling of hospitals, as you say, markets, civilian spaces. Yeah, if you if you look at pictures of of west of, of sorry east Aleppo, you, you know it, it looks like Grozny may have looked like. Uh, also, if you look at some pictures from some of the areas in the Damascus countryside, which were rebel enclaves, these are places that have been completely eviscerated. And uh, we we think at least twenty thousand civilians have been killed in these airstrikes, but that's almost certainly an undercount. You know, there's been mm-hmm. no real way to document uh, how many people have died because most of the places that have been the most heavily bombarded have subsequently been taken over by the Syrian regime. And they, you know, they're not going to allow independent investigators to go sift through the rubble and find out what the real toll is. Yeah. I mean, the propaganda aspect of it is very, very different. It's a totally different war in that sense. Um, as you say, in Syria, it was the regime asking the Russians to intervene. So then once the intervention was over, they had a vested interest in making sure nobody really knew what happened. That's totally different from what is happening in Ukraine. Oh, exactly. And, and you know, that's one of the reasons why I think already the international intention has been extraordinary. And that's a good thing on what's on, on Ukraine. And it, but it's, I, you know, for somebody who's covered the Syrian conflict, you, you wish you had seen just a uh, percentage of this type of intention at the height of the of the bombings in Syria, when, mm. for example, the Russians were attacking eastern Aleppo, because the atrocities that were 
happening and were documented. You know, these these weren't cover-ups. These you know, there were Syrian activists and journalists who were there documenting more or less every single crime that took place in those years. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think from a lot of us uh, looking at the Ukraine war today, uh, it seems new and different and unprecedented. And sadly, it's not unprecedented. How does it look to you? I mean, watching, you've reported on the Syrian conflict. How does it look to you watching the Ukraine conflict? As you say, there is a discrepancy in the amount of information that is in the public domain, or at least in the mainstream media. Well, it's it's interesting because uh, there's a great deal of sympathy and support uh, for the Ukrainians and the Ukrainian resistance, which there should be, I think. Um, uh, whereas for, with the Syrian case, from the very beginning, you never had such straightforward type popular support in Western countries. And one of the reasons for that, I think, is because of the convoluted, complex, fragmentary nature of the Syrian opposition, in which it did include um, members of uh, you know Islamic fundamentalists, as well as others who are anti-Islamic fundamentalists and were um, pro-democracy. But the Ukrainian resistance is no different. You know, there's the Azov Brigade, which is a fascist or neo-fascist group, which is, you know, fighting on the same side as those who are trying to defend the Ukrainian democracy. So that that kind of the messiness is is uh not unusual. And in civil wars, and especially these days where you don't have cohesive progressive forces, you'll have large numbers of people who are resisting or fighting in a war, and you may have opportunists, whether they're far right or Islamic fundamentalists, who seek to take advantage of of the maelstrom. Um, so, in that sense, I think Ukraine doesn't actually look all that different from Syria. Yet, our response to Ukraine has been extraordinarily different. Mm. One major difference is, as you say, the reaction from the rest of the world, but then also the way that the Russians have responded to the mainstream media jumping on every single one of these videos so that the the story of what is actually happening on the ground in Ukraine is quite well known. But then they have responded with this Russian misinformation, blaming crisis actors for the reports of the bombs and so on. Do you think that going forward as the Ukraine conflict plays out over weeks and perhaps months, do you think that will make a difference in how the the conflict is perceived. I think in, it may, and, and you know, we should be clear that uh, approach, uh, spreading conspiracies, sowing doubt, that was actually pioneered in Syria by the Russians. Uh, mm. There was an uh, example, a couple of examples where the Assad regime deployed uh, chemical weapons, and there's no question or doubt that uh, he deployed chemical weapons. What the there was Russian troll troll farms, and there were uh, you know uh, there were um, misinformation efforts coming out of Moscow and coming out of areas that are in the Russian orbit that were sowing doubt. And, uh, you know, the, the MO there was not necessarily to disprove the idea that the regime had used chemical weapons, but rather it was just to, to make people question it and say, well, we don't know the whole story. We don't know both sides yeah. of the story. And, you know, yeah. it's the fog of war. It's complicated. Uh, that was pioneered in Syria. And it's, as we see, it's being used in, in Ukraine. And I think it's going to be used to increasing extents, especially as if if the Russians continue to uh, have much slower progress than they hope, then I think that's going to be one of their one of the strategies that they rely on. As you say, it was used in Syria. It was used to excellent effect because years later, we're still having the same arguments about the use of chemical weapons. Yeah, it's extraordinary. I mean, that's just an example of the fact that they were successful. They were able to sow doubt successfully. And, you know, the one, I think, uh, ray of hope here is that Ukraine is a bit more, because it's integrated into Europe, it's more accessible. Um, and there's a larger uh, 
this sort of community. There's not a huge refugee population already um, mm-hmm. in parts of Europe. And so there could be other ways to counteract that messaging. Whereas, unfortunately, with Syria, uh, the refugee pop- question was always uh, a d- deeply contentious one. It was very difficult for Syrian refugees to to leave. Tur- you know, they can get to Turkey or Jordan, but then to try to make it to Europe was ext- extremely daunting. There was anti-refugee policies. Yeah, so, the numbers you know, there's some differences. Yeah, the numbers in the diaspora were lower, so perhaps it wasn't as easy to access the media. Absolutely. But you can imagine, I mean, this, hopefully this won't happen, but if there were some serious attack, a chemical weapons attack or something like that, you can imagine a scenario where 10 years from now we're still arguing about what happened in March or April of 2022. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think this, and this is clearly the the approach. I mean, they've all, Russia has already indicated I think they put out a statement saying that the U.S. is um, involved in biological weapons research. Um, you know, I think this is part, we should see that as part of this this attempt. Now, one difference I've seen so far is uh, the Western left on Syria was deeply confused and divided, and there was a lot of progressives and leftists who would otherwise be, you'd think, hostile to imperial powers dropping bombs on defenseless people, which is what happened in Russia. Um, Basically, giving Russia a pass, or even um, you know, sometimes uh, perpetuating Russia's uh, propaganda, mm. you see less of that today. The, I think the Western left, at least, is for the most part um, taking a much more critical stance towards Russia's Russia's actions. And we have to ask why that's the case. And you can't help but wonder whether the fact that the Islamic character of the Syrian war. And the fact that most people, whether they're for democracy or where they're fundamentalists, were Muslims, mm. um, on some level may have also played a role in tapping into the late forms of Islamophobia in the West. You, I suppose, would consider yourself a man of the left. Do you have a sense of why the Syrian conflict divided the left so much? I think the the left has been uh, weaned in a in a a uh, unipolar world where the United States was for a number of years the main purveyor of violence across the globe. Um, I think the experience of the Iraq war profoundly shaped uh, people's sensibilities. And so that's understandable. But what uh, Syria really, the Arab Spring generally in Syria, inaugurated and now what we're seeing come to fruition with Ukraine is that, that we're moving to a multipolar world and there are various great powers. Of course, the United States is still an important one, but so is Russia, so is China. Um, then there are regional powers like Iran uh, and uh, and Saudi Arabia. And these powers uh, seek to uh, extend their influence, uh, sometimes economically and sometimes violently through military conquest. And I think uh, it's taken some time for the for the left to reacquaint itself with that fact that we're in a multipolar world. I think now we're beginning to see a little bit of a shift with the current war in Ukraine. I suppose part of shifting to a multipolar world is shifting the blame to other actors in the world. And this was something that the Syrian intellectual Yasin al-Hajj Saleh wrote actually for the magazine this week about Noam Chomsky, saying that he felt that the problem with Chomsky's worldview is that it only ever seemed to blame the imperialism of the United States. First of all, I suppose I should ask you if you recognize that criticism. But then secondly, I wonder if you feel as we shift to this multipolar world, is it the case then that the left will start to blame other imperialisms? Uh, yeah, I think that's a fair criticism of Chomsky. I think, you know, he would, you know, it's just as to, maybe in his defense a little bit that he was coming, he, he, 
came to being at a time, came of age at a time when the Vietnam War was was uh, the most important form of violence, global violence that was taking place. And then he was he wrote a lot in the seventies and eighties about uh, activities that the United States did to undermine democracy around the globe and especially in Central America. Uh, it's after nineteen ninety one, I think, where things got complicated, where uh, now you had a sole superpower. And uh, it just became very easy, I think, to just focus on what the United States is doing. And there was a sense, if not from him, then at least from some of his acolytes saying that, well, if we criticize other powers, that somehow means we're siding with the United States or with the U.S. State Department. Whereas, you know, there's, it's clearly possible to be able to say that the U.S. invasion of Iraq was wrong and the Russian bombing of Syria was wrong. And there should be no contradiction there. You don't have, I mean, in the United States, you don't have as much of the the left-wing argument that says that this war was to some degree provoked by the expansion of NATO. It's more common in Europe, I think. But you recognize that criticism, don't you, as being something that, as you say, a smaller segment of the left is talking about, but it still exists. It's there. And, uh, you know, that was, I think, uh, the knee-jerk reaction initially when this when this invasion happened. And again, it was just a, a symptom of people kind of falling into this binary mode of thinking that either NATO has to be at fault or the Russians have to be at fault, whereas something much more complicated was happening over the last 30 years, where there's different um, spheres of influence by great powers, both kind of um, seeking to expand expand their area of, of say, their remit. Um, and But the real clear aggressor here is Russia, no matter what one thinks about NATO. I, I, but I do think that, whereas initially that was kind of the sentiment among in the left, that has changed to some extent. And possibly seeing the unmitigated brutality of the Russians, and especially in the last week, has also uh, began to shift some people's opinions, I think. Do you think that the left has this kind of reckoning coming with some of its anti-imperialistic instincts, let's say? Because as you say, you look at the Ukraine war and it is so obvious which side is the aggressor, even if you want to accept that perhaps NATO expanded too quickly or any of the versions of those arguments it's still fairly clear who is dropping the bombs, as you're saying. That's what happened in Syria. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the challenges, if you compare the left views now to, let's say, 50, 40 years ago, is that you had um, invasions, I say the United States invasion in Vietnam, where at least leftists to some degree could identify with the people who are resisting because those people are putatively left-wing, whereas the NLF mm. or whoever. Today, uh, for a number of reasons, that's not the case. You have, uh, whether in Syria or in, in Ukraine, it's not that you have left-wing forces, people who identify themselves as part of the left, leading the resistance. You just have ordinary people who may you know, have all sorts of different complicated, contradictory sets of politics who are resisting just because they want to you know, they don't want to live under occupation. Yeah. Uh, and for the left to not have that sort of, uh, that the sort of, the, the group to champion, I think, is a new, it's a new position for leftists to be in. And that's part of the relearning that the left has to do and is, is doing slowly. Uh, as The relearning of? Uh, relearning that the left has to do and is doing in acclimating to a multipolar world. How did you interpret the relative silence from some parts of the world, like Africa and countries that were perhaps formerly part of the non-aligned movement during the Cold War? Well, you know, there's uh, a number of countries that uh, depend on Russia directly for, you know, through political, for political economy reasons. Um, and I think they saw that there was very little to gain 
by by trying to come out and against the against Russian aggression. And I think it also shows on a much you know deeper level. It shows again this this move towards a multipolar world where in the past I don't know like India take India for example right. Yeah. I, I would be surprised if India 20, 30 years ago wouldn't have had this would have had the same positions it has today. But uh, you know India is looking to balance uh, itself with China and it sees Russia as an important ally in that. So. Um, in that sense, it's like real politics. So, so I'm not surprised that they're, that these countries are kind of staying quiet. In some cases, India is an excellent example. It's putting these countries in very difficult position because you have this huge sanctions regime coming from the Western countries. And yet countries like India have sort of declined to take part in that. Yeah, exactly. And there's Latin American countries, Bolivia and others. Exactly. Um, You know, and I think there's a recognition here that uh, to take part in that maybe 10, 15 years ago would have meant something else that uh, but today to take part in that would mean uh, would be much more economically dangerous. Mm. I want to talk a bit about Afghanistan, which, of course, you know very well. But before we get to it, I wanted to think about the comparison that is now often made about Ukraine being Russia's Afghanistan. And of course, Russia had an Afghanistan, which was actually Afghanistan when the Soviets invaded in the 1980s. Do you think that in any way that comparison is helpful? And I wonder if you think that when you compare it to the United States intervention in Afghanistan, which you've been very critical of, um, that there are there are I mean there are useful comparisons to be made. I think uh, there's actually a lot of differences between, if you look at Afghanistan and and Ukraine, I think the most important thing, and again, this is relevant for Syria as well, uh, the forces that the Russians are up against, it's it's an organized state. They have tanks, you know. They have conscripts. They have uh, an air force. They have anti-aircraft weaponry. Um, what what the Russians were facing in Afghanistan was, in some ways, similar to Syria. It was just a ragtag force of of people, of farmers, um, you know, of tribes, people. And of course, the U.S. supplied Stinger missiles, and that made a, a huge difference. But it took ten years, and up to a million Afghans died as a result. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and chaos uh, ensued. And I think a lot of Times when people try to bring up Afghanistan and the Russian intervention or the U.S. involvement in the '80s, they think this is what happens the moment you get in- involved in, in these places. That chaos is going to ensue, and maybe something worse, for example, Al Qaeda in Afghanistan's case, will, will emerge. But these are places, Afghanistan and Syria as well, where uh, either the state had completely collapsed, or um, things had um, just been conducted along tribal lines or clan lines. It's not like Ukraine. Ukraine is a much more developed society than these. Uh, I would be surprised. I mean, I'm sure there's going to be some kind of long-running conflict, but I would be surprised if it ended up in the same way as Afghanistan, where we're talking about Ukraine 10 years from now, Mm. just because of the forces are just that much more powerful that Russia has to face at the very beginning. We're now six months on from the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan. How do you assess the situation now? Well, Taliban, and I was there just very recently, uh, Taliban, uh, Taliban control of Afghanistan, and uh, on the one hand, uh, the country's at peace, which is, you know, remarkable to see, and uh, people are able to just do basic things that they were unable to do for so long. I mean, you can imagine just sending your kids to school or going going to the well, and uh, that, that would be gambling with your life before, and now, you know, basic everyday tasks are things people can do. Um, on the other hand, this this economic stranglehold on the country, um, 
you know, I walking on the streets, you can see an increase in people begging um, in uh, food insecurity and um, many, many stories of families trying to sell their daughters into marriage for for money. Um, it's a pretty economically dire situation. And then the Taliban, uh, I think their view is uh, that even if the people starve, they themselves are not starving, and mm. they seem to be doing fine. So the sanctions aren't really affecting them. Uh, and so it's kind of the worst of both worlds when it comes to the economic situation. The one thing, and I think the one way reason why things haven't just fallen apart is because for the first time in really 40 or 44 years, the country's at peace and people are savoring that peace. About the time of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, you wrote an article for The New Yorker called The Other Afghan Women. And this was you speaking to women in rural Afghanistan who were, if not supportive of the Taliban, they at least preferred them to the alternatives. And I wonder now that you've had a chance to revisit if you think that that is now something that perhaps more widely is believed, that the lack of corrupt U.S. warlords, the lack of this constant fighting, the lack of daily massacres, that allows people an opportunity to move on, even if they have to move on under a Taliban regime. Yeah, I think so. You know, I'll tell you something I saw that was pretty remarkable or surprising to me is that, uh, you know, shortly after the Taliban takeover, and of course, we all saw on our television screens uh, thousands of people rushing to the airport and tens of thousands fleeing. Um, at the same time as that was happening, uh, when I was driving through the countryside, this is September and October, you had thousands of people returning to the country. Uh, oh, these wow. are people people who had fled uh, the violence at various points over the last 20 years, were living usually in Pakistan or in Iran in refugee camps. And they were coming back and they're coming and coming to their homes and trying to rebuild their homes. And uh, so you have that sensibility that's there, definitely. And so it doesn't mean, I, I don't think that people necessarily like the Taliban. I mean, they have a constituency, but for the most part, uh, the Taliban, I think people view them, the part of the problem is the Taliban represent a constituency in one part of the country, but Afghanistan is a very diverse place mm -hmm. and, you know, different social norms, different interpretations of religion and tribal practice, etc. And so the Taliban are trying to impose one way of living on the entire country, and people don't like that, of course. But if they see that the alternative to that is going back to the previous 20 years, then people will take this. It sounds like it might be that the Afghans are swapping one refugee crisis for another. Those who left a while ago and went to Pakistan and Iran may be coming back, and then the others who fled the Taliban are sort of replacing them abroad. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Although I would say that uh, probably if you add up the total numbers who fled the Taliban, we're talking in the hundreds of thousands, um, just, just because that's the limit of what the Western countries would, would take. But the, if we're looking at the numbers who fled in the last 20 years, we're easily into the millions. So you might end up with a net inflow of refugees. Yeah, yeah. Quite a remarkable story, one that you don't often hear discussed. Yeah, I think we we were, um, you know, watching what was unfolding at the airport, and that's where the cameras were. Uh, mm -hmm. And so it's understandable. But there was a, you know, that this is, Kabul is not representative of the country, and there was a very different reality happening elsewhere. Now that you've been back, Mac, you wrote once that the Americans effectively created two Afghanistans, one mired in endless conflict, the other prosperous and hopeful. Are those two Afghanistans still there now? And do you think they'll continue into the future? Well, it's a good question. I think initially those two Afghanistans were just flipped, that the previous places that were mired in conflict were hopeful and vice versa. But of course, the 
economic situation is pretty dire. Uh, the, I mean, the international community led by the United States is uh, effectively keeping Afghanistan in an economic stranglehold. The central bank has no money. There's hardly any liquidity in the country. Um, you know, the, the, the sanctions regime has affected not really affected the Taliban, but affected ordinary people. And so I wouldn't say any part of the country is prosperous at this point. Um, it's, it, if you talk to some Afghans, they believe this is the continuation of a war through other means because it's Afghans who are suffering. And now they're watching what's happening in Ukraine and seeing millions of dollars, and rightly so, go, going to Ukrainians uh, in their time of need. And just wondering where is the will to do something similar for for Afghans, which uh, the international community and the Americans in particular have a moral responsibility for, given their involvement for twenty years. Mm. I wanted to talk a little bit about the future of war, which is something I know you spent time thinking about. Every decade or so, there seems to be this war that shakes up some of the pre-existing assumptions about warfare, and Ukraine has certainly shaken up some of the assumptions about what Russia might do. I wonder if you think it's had an impact on how the wars of the future might might look, like what might people think about war and, for example, deterrence in light of the lessons of the invasion? Well, of course, it's, it's early to say, but what's striking so far with, with the Russian invasion is how poorly they've been able, they've equipped themselves in terms of uh, logistics. I mean, they've struggled with logistics. You know, there's so many images of Russian tanks that are just ab- abandoned. Um, there's stories of conscripts that are, that are trying to quit or switch sides. Um, and this is a major military power that is struggling against not a major state. You know, Ukraine, mm-hmm. I, I, I said it was a cohesive state but it's still a pretty small country yeah when and, you look at and, the the numbers i mean in comparison it's just there's no comparison really in terms of exactly. fighter jets and yeah absolutely exactly and and now if you look at that and in the same breath as we were looking at the american military failures i mean you look at the united states they fought in afghanistan against some of the most under-equipped uh, adversaries they've ever faced people in sandals you know and mm. rocket launchers that basically people most of whom couldn't read and were just farmers and so why is it that these great military powers are unable to win what would be wars that they would have just easily won you know 60 70 years ago we're talking right. in world war ii there was days where like thousands of people were killed and they would just take an objective and and these uh neither of these major powers are able to do that and i think part of the reason is the way in which the u.s and russia have privatized basic functions that were once belonging to the military the kind of corruption that's either um, official or unofficial corruption that's taken the place in, in in russia for example you have the wagner group which is a private security contractor that does a lot of the frontline fighting and is been important in syria and in other other contexts you have logistics chains that have been outsourced to in in russia's case to oligarchs and to cronies that are linked to the to the regime same thing in the United States. You have the Beltway Bandits. You have uh, these these corporations that are making millions of dollars on logistics, and parts of the military have been privatized. So it's almost as if uh, these states are trying to do something that states used to do of their size do very well, which is to wage war. But they've gutted themselves to an extent that they're unable to to acquit themselves very well in what would what would look like very simple context. And I wonder if that is part of the future of, of conflict. Um, so it's sort like of retrenchment the, back to the old way of fighting, very centralized state way of waging war. 
Well, or, or that rather, I, I think that the future world would be more like what we're seeing with Russia and the United States. It's just a, a, a stalemates and quagmires where you have major powers not able to win decisive victories and wars, maybe not having the same level of casualties as they used to have, but uh, extending themselves over years, uh, maybe decades, um, and eventually just petering out or ending the way they, they ended in Afghanistan. How did you interpret uh, Putin's threat to use the nuclear option so early? It sort of felt like it undermined the whole framework of deterrence. And it's and, and actually, it seems to work, certainly with the European powers. It seems like it did work, yeah. And I think this is, it sounded like it was just something he was testing out to see what the immediate reaction would be. And I think this probably must be confidence still on their side that the Western powers are not going to intervene directly. Uh, it's clear that's not going to happen. So in that in that sense, I think that it was a gambit that from their side worked on the one hand and on the other hand sought to signal that, uh, you know, he is ready to get serious if, if the West is. But it seems like the West, there's no appetite in the West definitely for a direct confrontation or even a no-fly zone. No, I mean, it's quite a frightening thing, though, isn't it? I mean, the, the idea of deterrence for a long time has been that if you have a balance of power of nuclear weapons on either side, no one will take the risk of using them. But if it seems as if Putin is willing to even threaten it, then what you've ended up with is a situation where people don't want to piss off Putin in order to avoid any version of nuclear war. Yeah, that's a good point. It's it's a terrifying prospect. And even more terrifying is if you had somebody else, let's say, in the White House, um, such as the previous president, how would he have reacted? It's, it's, it's unclear. Um, and so a lot of this deterrent system actually rests on, you know, sane minds uh, and sort of uh, people really playing like careful, careful, judicious, real politic. But if you have one person who thinks otherwise, it could really upset the apple cart and, you know, disaster can ensue. How do you think the previous president would have handled it? He's made some statements, <laughs> I mean, some brilliant tactical ideas about yes. <laughs> about using using fighter jets with the, with the Chinese insignia and just thinking he'd get away with it. <laughs> well, uh, he's, uh, you know, looking back to Syria, the, I think the withdrawal, the partial withdrawal of, of Syria, I think is it gives a window into how he might have reacted, which is that he was very rash and, and uh, you know, he had this idea that he didn't want the U.S. involved in these wars. And so he just went ahead and did this did this decision. But what happened is the moment that the U.S. troops started to pull back from their from their positions in Syria towards the oil fields in the south, uh, remote southeast. Uh, you had a domino effect uh, where all of the allies were coming in and trying to talk to the U.S. Uh, there was a lot of pressure that he faced from within his own party uh, that he he kind of stopped, halted at that point. So U.S. troops are still in Syria, but they're at a, at a position that was removed from where they were before. I, I would suspect something similar would happen if he had been in power, that he would have possibly done something rash um, in the beginning. Hopefully it would have been so escalatory that it would have led to nuclear war, but he would have done something rash. And then the cooler heads would have had to prevail probably from within his own party and and, um, and rein him in. But the ultimate result would have been roughly the same, that Putin still would have waged this war on Ukraine. Yes. Yeah. I think the ultimate result would have been the same. And is that, do you judge that that is because Putin has these interests in Ukraine that he's absolutely unwilling to give up regardless of what he thinks the response will be? Actually, my sense is rather that it, it was an attempt to test the West at a moment of weakness. Uh, it's clear the United States is uh, in a world of trouble, uh, both internally and internationally. And 
following the Afghan defeat, um, following various, uh, you know, both, you know, two, two presidents now that have said basically effectively America first when it comes to international policy. And I think this was the Russian uh, ruling class's attempt to see how far they can go. That's that's my read of it, and uh, I see I see it as more of that than somehow something unique about Ukraine that they needed to they needed to uh, right, intervene right. because you know they've intervened in, as you mentioned in a number of conflicts already uh, around the globe. And then, what do you think the Russian elite has taken from the pushback over the last two weeks? It's hard to say. Uh, you know, I think that the the one um, outcome that they want to avoid was direct confrontation, and that so far they've avoided that. So. Uh, but where they think, where it seems they may have miscalculated is in the ease with which it would have been to take Ukraine. Um, less so, I think, because of, partly because of the resolve of the Ukrainians and, and the fighting force, but but also because of the forms of corruption and inefficiency that have plagued the Russian military. I mean, if you look at how Rus- the Russian forces have quitted themselves in other conflicts, in Libya, they didn't do a very good job. The Russians who had backed their their proxies yeah. were mostly getting um, hammered by Turkish drones. In, in Syria, Ru- the Russians haven't really been able to achieve their main objectives. I mean, they were able to keep Assad in power, but really he only has about a third of the country, right? And so... They want, you know, the ultimate, the original goal was to have Syria back to what it was pre-2011. That's not going to happen. So that's a, that's a big failure. Um, they wanted to exploit mineral reserves uh, in, in Syria. And for the most part, they've had extraordinarily difficulties doing so. They have difficulties dealing with their militias. There's lots of Syrian militias that are in on the Russian payroll that sometimes listen to the Russians and sometimes don't. So they, they haven't done very well. And I think it speaks to, as I said earlier, the corruption, the, the sort of rampant privatization um, and the difficulty of the Russian state to exert its will in the way it wants to. To finish off, I wanted to go back to the interview you did with The New Yorker. You said that one of the reasons you thought that Russia hadn't gone all out against Ukraine, at least under the time, was because of the degree of international attention the conflict was getting. And I wonder if you feel, as it pertains to Syria, that maybe if the media had been a little bit louder over what was happening in the last 11 years, that maybe the worst aspects of the Syrian war could have been avoided. Well, I think I wouldn't say exactly on the media. I think the media did cover it and fairly loudly, but uh, it didn't translate up to the level of uh, policymakers, and there, that's the big difference. And also, it didn't it didn't permeate outside of the media sphere to to let's say everyday people. You know, what's extraordinary is I can just walk and live in New York, and you walk on the streets, and you'll just see Ukrainian flags everywhere. It's just yeah. from there's just a sense in which, uh, you know, and people are watching this on TikTok, you know, and there's other yeah. media that didn't exist when the Syrian war started, so it's it's re, it's uh, penetrated to outside of the news bubble, everyday news bubble, into like ev- everyday consciousness of people to to one extent, and I think partly for that reason, and partly because uh, the strategic interests for the Western countries is much greater when it comes to Ukraine than it comes to Syria. It's penetrated into the into the consciousness of, of the policymakers as well. So they're very quick to send weapons, very quick to send funding. You saw, you know, how they reacted to the refugees, uh, opening yeah. their doors to refugees. So that's the big difference, in my opinion. I wonder if, on a personal level, as somebody who's been to a lot of conflicts around the world, war zones, do you feel 
sad that these conflicts have not had the same recognition in the West as the Ukraine conflict has in such a short period of time? I it's do. a hard question, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, it's hard because, of course, I'm happy that I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm glad that it's getting the attention it is. So this is not an argument to say we shouldn't be paying this kind of attention to Ukraine, but rather this shows, you know, what people can do when they take these conflicts seriously. And this is an American will say that we have, in the United States have been at war for two decades, uh, but that conflict is completely, this Afghanistan conflict and then Iraq, for the most part, was was not part of our everyday experience. You know, uh, most people, if you, I think if you just ask people on the street last year, let's say, um, is the United States at war in Afghanistan? I'm not sure most people would even say they knew that the U.S. was, was at war there. You know, yeah, so it's yeah, like yeah. the realities of conflict have completely been um, sort of removed. And that's by design, I think. That's uh, that's one of the reasons why we don't have a draft. That's one of the reasons why it's a volunteer army and the U.S. is careful in getting uh, reporters to embed with them. I think the U.S. does not want, uh, and not just the U.S., other countries don't want their citizenry to really be thinking about the conflicts that they're engaged in. And so Ukraine is a bit different in that case, and it's been able to penetrate. So it is sad. It is sad, but hopefully Ukraine, um, not that we want, future conflicts, but if there are, that Ukraine would be a, a model for how we uh, engage with it and analyze it in the future. Anand Gopal, thank you very much. Thanks so much. You can follow Anand on Twitter at Anand underscore Gopal and buy his book on Afghanistan, No Good Men Among the Living, America, the Taliban and the War Through Afghan Eyes in all good bookshops. This week's podcast was produced by Joshua Martin and hosted by me, Faisal Yafai. You can subscribe to the New Lines magazine podcast on your favorite podcast app. And of course, you can find more of the best stories from the Middle East and beyond on our website, newlinesmag.com. Thank you all for joining us.